Welcome to the Never Again Is Now podcast about anti-Semitism. I am Phyllis Zimbler Miller, a co-founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, In Edge of the Witch. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest with a small Jewish community. And my grandparents came from Latvia and Russia at the turn of the century, 20th century. My US Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich only 25 years after the end of World War II. This podcast is being done in partnership with Evelyn Marcus, a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors who was featured in the documentary, Never Again Is Now. In 2006, she immigrated to the United States because of the rise in anti-Semitism. Our guest today, who I'm so appreciative of, she's calling in from Frankfurt, is Karen Jungblad, who will now tell you a little bit about herself. Hello. Hi, Phyllis. Hi, Evelyn. Um, thank you very much for the invitation to be part of your podcast, um, Never Again Is Now. What a appropriate title of a podcast and how important it is these days um, to really go into what it means, the words never again, and particularly what it means for them to be talking about now. So my name is Karen Jungblut. I'm um, calling in from Frankfurt, Germany. Um, I work for the UC Schur Foundation for the last 25 years. UC Schur Foundation is the Institute for Visual History and Education at the University of Southern California. And um, I myself grew up in Germany. I was born in Germany and um, I did my grandma in high school. Um, in Germany and afterwards spent most of my adult life actually studying and working in the United States and just recently returned, I guess in a way, uh, to Germany again, the last, it's been four years now, um, to work for the UC Schur Foundation in a number of different programs and projects uh, with global partners. And it's part of your personal and professional four years now in Germany. Have you experienced anti-Semitism directly? I myself have not experienced directly anti-Semitism, but I have experienced it or um, had to deal with the impact of anti-Semitism very directly and in a number of different ways, um, especially because of the work we do. Um, in being involved with many survivors, speaking with many survivors, um, also interviewing, continuing to interview survivors about their experience. Uh, but I think there are, I would say, I will give two examples that I think are quite representative and reflective of what's really happening. Um, we as the Shura Foundation, we collected, um, conducted survivor testimonies uh, since 1994. Uh, with Holocaust survivors all over the world. We have an archive over, with over 55,000 testimonies of survivors of the Holocaust and other genocides. It is mostly about the Holocaust. Um, and as part of this uh, collection, we also have uh, in the 90s done about 900 uh, interviews in Germany with survivors and Jewish survivors who lived in Germany at the time. And um, in, within the last year, a, the son of a survivor, the survivor himself who gave testimony has passed away um, a few years back. 
but the son contacted us and urged us actually i would say begged us to take the testimony of his father out of the archive and why the testimony of his father um, was in a sense only accessible at universities that we, our archive is accessible, which is about 160 universities. In Germany, it's four, three or four universities. One of them is the Free University in Berlin. And the reason he wanted uh, the testimony to be taken out, A, he has the exact same name as his father. And when you search his father's name, his father comes up as a Holocaust survivor, the testimony being accessible in various places, um, and so on. And he, out of fear for his own safety as a German Jewish person, didn't want people to be able to find any information about him. And so as a result, actually, of basically yeah, current anti-Semitism, he went as far as asking us if it's possible to you know take his father's testimony um, at least block it we call it block it for a certain time period um, as because he just doesn't feel or didn't feel safe enough anymore um, and so for me that was a very i've had several conversations with him about it because you know also wanting to make sure because his father did sign a release agreement and obviously his father went through um in i think mid or late 90s um, you know through doing the testimony it's in german um and obviously wanted it to be part of an archive wanted it to be part of an educational mission uh, but several phone calls with with the son uh, and talking it through it was clear that um, we had to adhere and it was you know it was our moral duty uh, to to comply with that um, and um, you know adhere to his uh, wishes, so to speak. But to me, that was a very sort of um, how shall I say it? A very strong message of what current anti-Semitism and the fear that whether it is perceived, whether it is real, um, whether you had direct already experiences or you fear of ha having direct experiences, what it does to people today yes that's one that's a very good example a very frightening example but it certainly paints a very strong picture yes please continue <laughs> yes so the second one is actually from also the son of survivors um, and we interviewed this person because of um, we also have a program where we are doing conducting interviews about current anti-semitism in europe in a number of different european countries and we started the collection about five or six years ago. Uh, it was initiated or in a sense triggered because of the events in um, Copenhagen when uh, there was the shooting in Copenhagen and uh, during a bat mitzvah and um, a, the security guard of the uh, community center and uh, where the bat mitzvah was held was killed. And our colleagues in Denmark at the time, when um, we discussed and we started this collection of testimonies, meaning we interviewed survivors and or witnesses to current anti-Semitic events, uh, in particular, either violent events or just the experiences that people have now. And we, we tried to also interview um, individuals who either observed it, saw something, 
were impacted directly or indirectly um, and also experts and or um, those who stand up and are doing something against it um, so that we can see it from a number of different perspectives. And so in this collection we have about now about 65 to 70 interviews done in about six, seven or eight different countries. Uh, Denmark, Sweden, France, Belgium, a um, couple of in Germany and, uh, and Hungary and so on. The, an interview in Sweden that we've interviewed, he was a famous or well-known journalist who also gave his testimony and was also quite outspoken about what has was been happening in Sweden. And in Sweden, um, it's also a very, very, very difficult um, uh, space. And, um, and he, after he gave his testimony uh, as part of this collection, and um, there's a couple of things he said. One was, he was actually, he said, I hate to say it, and he did this in an email to me, I hate to say it, but I'm actually glad that my parents are not alive anymore. Both were Holocaust survivors. Because he felt like um, they passed away when the rise was not sort of as off, you know, as open or as, as it wasn't, let's just say, so much out there. And so he was glad that they would not had to experience it again in that sense and in the other sense he said you know what i actually i watched my testimony and i think i have to block it because people will not understand what i'm saying and one of the things he said was he said that he right now has a very difficult time feeling swedish and um standing behind it but he said it in a way where he explains it and it's, it's obviously for those of us who are understanding of the complexities of identity and you can have dual identity and what does it mean, who we are, it's a nationality, it's a religion, it's an ethnic, it's how we feel, it's, I mean, there's all kinds of, right, it's layered. And he was trying to express that layered complexity about who he is and how he feels about things. But he was so worried that in this current climate and given his, um, his publicity or his, 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 his work that he does and um, his publicity that it would be um, hurtful and he actually would be more afraid. He's not, you know, he was a bit afraid, but he was really not that afraid. But with this, he said, you know what, I think I cannot do this. So he had to block his testimony because he felt like there will not be enough room for understanding. Um, to so for people to understand where he comes where it's coming from right now and if i understand correctly these testimonies are not widely distributed right so he was worried that even the you know smaller number of people it's not like putting it on youtube i just want to clarify it. right so yeah so his test i mean some testimonies we are we have a wide we have a number of different platforms where we distribute our testimony um, our, the entire archive is the Visual History Archive. That is accessible, searchable by the minute, all 55,000 testimonies. That's accessible at about 160 universities worldwide. So you have to go to the university in order to search uh, in the archive, ask for access. Um, so that's in a sense somewhat, let's just say, limited or you know, controlled, um, however you want to look at it. Um, reason, of course, being that it, we are a university, we're part of a university, and for us, it is important that this archive is um, made accessible to students and, uh, you know, um, 
uh, university level um, research. But we also have a uh, platform that is the Visual History Archive online version that is accessible anywhere. So you can search the metadata of all the testimonies, but you can only watch, and I put only now in quotes, about, I think at this point, 4,000 testimonies. So it's a, you know, it's a certain number of the 55,000 that we made also accessible to anywhere um, that you can also watch. Um, and so these testimonies that I was just talking about weren't part of that being available everywhere. They were only available at universities. Um, but even with that, it's, there is concern. And so for me, these might be sort of, one might say anecdotal, you know, like small ex or like examples of something, but to me, they're actually quite telling. To me, as a storyteller, they're, I'm like emotional over these. These are very telling because one of the things that this show really wants to do is talk about people's personal feelings. You know, we can see all kinds of anti-Semitic slogans and everything, but what does it feel to us personally? And when these two anecdotes show how deeply the fear is and how important it is that we admit the fear and then work towards helping reduce it. So I have a very specific question because we have a limited time. I want to know when you personally first learned about the Holocaust. So, um, I mean, as I said before, I grew up in Germany. Um, so I grew up in a German non-Jewish family. I'm not Jewish. And um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So for me, it was in a sense, I cannot point to a time or moment that's when I found out about it because it is sort of bit this feeling like I've always known about it because it's the thing that um, at the time even it was either something that you heard or it's in school. One thing I know, I didn't find out about it from my family. I think that I can say, and now that I've said this, I actually have to track back. And the reason I have to track back is because um, it's not quite true. There was, I received a book when I turned, I think, 12 or 13. And that book was called The Exodus, mm. Leon Uris, Uris. And of course, that book deals with the Holocaust. Yes. And, um, and part of that reason of, with the book is because um, what I was told afterwards is that um, I was named after a character in that book because when my mom was pregnant, the film apparently came out with, I think it was Paul Newman and um, Eva Maria Saint or something. I think it was That's that- Paul Newman, definitely. <laughs> that version of the film. And so my mom went to the movies, pregnant, saw that film. And there was a character in that film, her name was Karen. And so she said, if this is a girl, I'm gonna name her Karen. So that's the story I was told in a sense. And that's why my um, aunt gave me the book because she wanted me to know. And so it became, I like inhaled that book, not because of that name giving, because I think I found that out later, but just because it, I was very impressionable and it was just very interesting book. Yes, you know, I interesting longer before you and it's amazing, right? Yeah. Um, 
anyway, so that's obviously when I've, but I knew already what the Holocaust was when the, when I read the book. So there must have been something in the school. I just know that it wasn't something my family talked about. It wasn't something we talked about. Even World War II was not necessarily something we talked about. What we talked about is, you know, make sure you eat all the food because, you know, be lucky that you have food and, um, and the certain kinds of food that my mom was making or I knew from my grandmother is because of what they went through through the war kinds of things. So um, it was really then in high school um, that I really learned about it. I did have a teacher who um, um, we had a couple of projects and I remember one project which I really enjoyed was learning about Judaism, learning about Jews. And um, we were talking about Ashkenazi and Sephardim. And then I decided to write a paper on Sephardim. And so kind of not only sort of learning about the Holocaust and, and basically our, you know, Jewish communities from the perspective of being murdered and victims and, and targeted, but actually who, what's the religion, who are, where do the people come from, etc. So there was all of that type of education that was part of the school I was in. Now I also was in a school that was named after a Carmelite nun who was murdered by the Nazis for being Jewish. Right. Could you say your name? I, I do. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was Edith Stein, Edith Stein uh, School. And, um, and so I think there was sort of a bit of that type of narrative that informed, I think, also how much the school did or the teachers did in order to, you know, teach about the subject. So I had, a, I think, a pretty good education. And then I was part of an exchange program with Israeli students and German students, 16, 17. Israelis from Israel came to Germany. We toured for three weeks Germany basically with the Israeli students. The first time I went to a concentration camp was actually as part of that trip. Which, which camp? Dachau concentration camp. So we went to the Dachau Memorial concentration camp together and uh, it was the first time I was in a former concentration camp and it was with young Israelis. And now we're talking about, it was actually 79, 1980. So, and that was a quite profound experience. And, um, you know, one of the things with the exchange program, you know, part of this was, of course, for German students and Israeli youngsters to kind of get to know each other. It was sort of this country building, you know, building relationships kinds of things also among the society. But for us, what I remembered was we had so much fun together, always outside of the obligatory you have to now sit and talk about our history meetings, which we had to have too. Um, but outside of them, we were just mingling. We had the, were friends. We were in touch. You know, it was it was great. But we had these obligatory meetings. We had the Israelis on one side, Germans on the other. And what I remember is how could you have done this? And the other side, well, we weren't alive. I'm, you know, we didn't do it. It, it was that kind of confrontational, like discussion which kind of wasn't going anywhere but it was fascinating when i in hindsight now and just as a little anecdote we actually had a reunion 30 years later two years ago <sighs> the israelis um got together and said we want to come visit again and so we actually and i luckily i was here and i could partake and it was great and we reunited most of those who came um, reunited in the same town that we, you know, were together before. 
for two, three days. And that was a lot of fun. Before we end this discussion, could you tell us how you got into the uh, Holocaust works? Um, how did I get into the Holocaust studies? Um, I guess because of uh, the school, I think because of the book, I think because of the experience, um, it was something that I was all that I began to be very interested in simply wanting to understand how the hell did my grandparents, because that was their, it was them, could have done this. These are people I like, these are people I grew up with, these are people I love. How is that possible? It's just on a very basic level and wanting to really understand what happened and how it could have happened. And um, let's just say long story short, um, I studied in New York and then I went back to Berlin, back to Berlin. I went to Berlin to finish my studies and while I was in Berlin, the Shura Foundation started to um, begin its interviews, um, begin and look for interviewers and I was very interested because I did my uh, diploma, master's in international affairs and history, but I wrote my thesis on the deportation of the German Jews. Um, and so it was something that I then also, you know, studied, so to speak. And with that, I heard about the Shura Foundation. Um, I applied, and the rest is history, so to speak. Very interesting. I don't think you have to answer this question, but just a yes or no. Did you go back and speak to your grandparents and ask them after you had learned a lot, or was that a subject that was not raised? You don't have to tell me what they said. I just want to know whether you... I, I did, not as much as I would have... I, I, this is something that I'm really annoyed and upset with myself that I didn't do it um, as much. One was both my grandfathers unfortunately passed away before I really had sort of that mindset or mindset before I really sort of was delved into their history and I could sit them down. I knew certain things about both of them, both on the East Front, one was on the West Front for a while, one was in Stalingrad, was, came out with the last plane. But I don't know what and where they involved in. I always try and I want to do some research at some point where I really want to find out more specifically. Some other relatives have done some research and we have some, some bad history in some family with some family members, clearly. But it's, it's um, my immediate one is very much sort of the, we really didn't know anything what happened kind of thing. My grandmother who, um, died when she was about a hundred and a half years old so she i did ask her quite a few times um when she was in her late 80s early 90s and she still was clearly good in mind stuff and she told me some interesting stories she told me some stories about um they were able to buy some um uh, shoes very cheaply from the shoe store which had a jewish owner um, but it had to be night during the night and they did it in the backyard. They always met in the backyard to do so because she, you know, she wasn't going into it, but it was clearly because of the laws that were already in place at the time. Um, she talked about being at a Jewish wedding in 1935, which I thought was really interesting. Very interesting. Um, and what she, what she, uh, you know, gave as a, as a wedding gift. Um, um, so that was, um, and then she never heard from them again. She said they, they left for the United States or something like that. So 
And then she says about things, um, the city in Frankfurt, for instance, when she takes the public transportation, that there's too many black people and too many uh, foreigners. And you, you know, you're not allowed to like, you, they don't, you know, they don't stand up when you come in as a German and sort of thing. So you kind of get these stories where you go like, okay, what do you do with that, right? Um, where you really clearly see very racist attitudes, comments, opinions. And then at the same time, well, I did this and then I did this and I knew this family. Yes, and, you know, we helped or we did this, but I think I wish I had more time with them for sure, because it's, it's all about really understanding. And I, I'm sure they knew exactly what was going on and there was no secrets. Yes, unfortunately, I agree with you that they knew, having done a lot of research, not as much as you, but I've done considerable research. And having lived in Germany, you know, when from September 7 to May 72, every time we got in a tram, we looked at people of a certain age and said, you know, what did they do? And I will tell you that on the tram, the Germans were rude to us, but not, they didn't know we were Jewish. They were rude because we were part of the yeah. occupying army. And, you know, if we bumped into someone, we'd say, excuse me, in German, and they would never see. So. Uh, yes, yes. And I mean, there's, you know, debates now today about, you know, what do we, are we, and for many years, like, are we being, were we liberated or, you know, or, you know, we're being occupied, we're not liberated, but, you know, aren't we being liberated? And well, who was actually liberated? Um, and, you know, that whole conversation um, is fascinating. And then we have this whole transgenerational um, familial storytelling that has um, has not has not been successful in Germany, and I think has actually uh, been the opposite in a sense. Meaning the silence, and or if grandparents shared stories with next generation, because there's been a couple of studies in the last ten years, it's clearly that these newer generations sort of more and more feel like that the Germans of then were, you know, barely perpetrators. More often than not, did they help a neighbor? More often than not, did they do something good? More often than not, they really didn't know what was going on. It was just a few people that did that uh, kind of thing because those stories weren't told to their kids or grandkids, right? Right. And so, On the one hand, we can understand why those stories weren't told. And on the other hand, Okay, now I'm emotional. That is why it can happen again. Because if you believe, if you believe that people can't be that evil, then it prevents you from seeing what can happen if you don't yeah. do something. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's something, um, when I came back to Germany, one of the things where I'm just, I was so baffled by a, the incredible rise of anti-Semitism, not anti-Semitism in itself, but it just it became so public and so open and so prevalent. And I'm thinking, what the hell happened, so to speak? We're 75 years, 80 years later in this country that was clearly the perpetrator country. This country that clearly stood that it said we did it, wasn't hiding behind something, let's just put it this way, in, you know, in, in, in a sense also prides itself for doing so much about 
memory culture, etc., which is also very controversial because there's there's so much to criticize about the way it's been happening because I think it's also failure, a complete failure, which is I think why we're also in the situation we are today. Um, that might be another podcast. I was just about <laughs> when yes, and that I would love to talk about that because that's. Because I just feel like, so I'm just going to end with another anecdote, because that to me is also one of those um, representational things of why things are the way they are. Um, we had a family get together a year before COVID, just cousins. And um, one of my uncles and aunt came also. They're in their late 90s, early 90s. So they were young adults, uh, World War II. Let's just say kids, young adults. But my uncle was um, a young adult enough that in the last month or two of 45, he was given a, um, a gun and he was, you know, drafted, so to speak, and supposed to, you know, um, defend the, the, the fatherland. And, um, and so then he was talking about this and he was talking about he had to be on a farm and he only got to eat something once or twice a day and he only got a glass of milk and some bread and he had to, I don't know, sleep in the in the in the shed or something like that and they were talking about my aunt was talking about yeah he, you know he didn't do well it was really hard and it's just like you know it was hard for him and i'm just listening to them because they're talking about it in a very emotional how much they suffer type of thing and i know this is a very common thing but to me it was sort of like so clear um where i couldn't even listen at some point anymore, I had to get up and I just kind of turned around and I kind of said, you know, you should just also think about what actually you cost, like what this whole war actually costs and how others like the suffering that you actually cost with the actions. Sort of think about if you can with your same, let's just say emotional intensity, feel of what was done to you also think about what you actually and you i put this in yes generally you was done to others then i would say okay we we're getting somewhere but that was not that doesn't exist it's people in that they just cannot sort of understand the 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 pain the the what was caused actually because it's so inward that it's only about how we suffered, that there's not even an opening to, because I almost wanted to say, well, you know what? You deserved a lot more than that because of what you did. Uh, now, of course, I didn't say that, uh, but I was very close to saying it. Um, so I had to leave, I had to just um, stay away and I had made some comment about, you know, um, you should really think about what actually people suffered and what really happened to people, um, etc. Um, but that to me is sort of this thing about where there was a complete inward looking and not an outward looking, not an openness by that generation to really confront. And learn. The crimes. The confront and, and if learn and even, let's just say, whatever learn would mean for them anyway be open admitting it in the sense of kind of standing to it even and i'm sure that for many it was just too hard because it was too painful to realize how cruel we were as people or their generation is or was 
but then you have to think about these are men that went back home came from the you know the the the, the mass shootings and whether it's in Auschwitz and the gas chambers whether it's shooting in the Ukraine and wherever and we're family members we're fathers again continued to be their police jobs went home to kids raised families I, that to me is is always the most puzzling of it all it's not about the monsters and the evil we use these words to kind of describe because we just cannot understand i think the more fearful thing about this whole thing is that it's that you people can do both they're capable of being both yes one of the one of the testimonies that i published in the 70s was a survivor who went back to her town in germany and went to the corner grocery store and you know the the grocery you know says hello and she looked down and she saw his ss boots that he hadn't even taken off and and that speaks to what i've i've never forgotten that just you know how many years it's been since i've heard that but that's to me it's chilling yeah and I can't thank you enough for what you've been willing to share. I do want to do another one later because I'm fascinated. When I, my daughter and I visited uh, Germany in August 2016, we went to all these memorials because in the 70s, when I lived in Germany, those didn't exist. And I thought, how interesting. So I would like to talk to you about why perhaps it's not working in terms of education. So I, I can just say it right now. We have the AFD in the, in the, in the yes. parliament. Yes, and we saw the, well, now I get really upset. We saw the posters in 2016. So ever since then, I've tracked, not tracked like an historian, the rising number. So I'm, for those people listening who don't know, it's the alternative for Deutschland, for Germany, and it's the far right. And well, Karen can tell you more, but it's frightening that they're now, growing in strength. Yes. So yes. that's why Never Again is Now podcast is being launched now. Thank you, Karen Youngblood, for being our guest. We really appreciate it. Thank you for those of you listening. Do check out for those of you listening, Evelyn Marcus's powerful documentary about anti-Semitism at joinneveragainisnow.com and check out my Holocaust nonfiction play at Thin Edge of the wedge.com, the edge of the wedge.com. And whenever you can, we encourage you to speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.